Hey friends, today's guest is my man, Dr. Andrew Huberman from the Huberman Lab in Stanford. We made a special trip out to Stanford to see his lab and for me to be a fucking guinea pig and do some really cool shit. He's working with VR, hypnosis, and a ton of other things, things that help people with anxiety and sleep. And those are absolutely critical in today's age. How can we better our experience on this planet without the use of pharmaceuticals? And these are the things that he's looking into that are really helping people. I noticed a huge shift. It's a lot of testing. I'll be quite honest. It might be worth it for you to stop this right now. Well, of course, after I get through this intro and then go to the YouTube to see exactly what we do. We have videos of what I see in VR versus what I'm doing. Uh, It shows my vital signs the whole time as I go through some Typically something that would be scary for somebody who's a little on edge. Uh, I didn't, I don't think I was too fearful. So maybe I passed with flying colors. I'm not sure, but check out the video for sure. It's a short one. It's a sweet one. Andrew Huberman, who was on the show before, will link to the first podcast we did together. Really gives a lot of bullet point details on how to effectively change the way you feel and operate during the day through breath work and other techniques. Uh, He's a wealth of knowledge. I'm definitely going to have him on the show again. Check this one out. Let us know what you think. Leave us a five-star rating. Tell your mom. Tell your friends. Hit subscribe. And also, give our sponsors a little bit of love. We've got a new one on the show today, Vital Farms. They are no stranger to Onnit, and they're no stranger to me personally. They've been right down the street from here at Onnit in Austin, and they've been serving up Vital Farms hard-boiled eggs and butter in the Onnit Cafe for years. It's a mainstay in my household, and they just came out with a dope new product. They've been making pasture-raised butter for years, and believes that great geese starts with better butter. And that's all it starts with, the cows. Pasture-raised cows are raised to graze on actual pastures like cows should be, not in some fucking feedlot. Vital Farms Ghee is clean and versatile butter oil for every culinary need. It's made by cooking down butter to remove the water and milk solids, clarifying, which means it's lactose and casein-free. This stuff might be the best-tasting condiment and cooking oil I've ever used. I throw it on steaks. I throw it in salads. I cover my kids' beef liverwurst with it before I serve them up. It's just a fantastic product, and it's in a fucking squeeze bottle. So it is one of the most convenient ways to add high-quality, healthy fats that are loaded with fat-soluble vitamins into your day. Look for Vital Farms Ghee in a squeeze bottle exclusively at Whole Foods Market in Original and Himalayan Peak Salt and visit vitalfarms.com slash ghee. That's vitalfarms.com slash G-H-E-E for a chance to win other Onnit products, and a year's supply of Vital Farms Ghee for free. Also, as you may remember, Onnit has just sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and to celebrate that milestone, we wanted to do something extra special for you, the customer. So in the spirit of Willy Wonka, we're running the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes. Listen, it's super fucking easy. All you got to do is purchase one 30-count or 90-count bottle of Alpha Brain. So you go to onnit.com slash Kyle, you buy a 30 count or 90 count bottle of Alpha Brain and make sure you enter code word Kyle to save yourself 10% off. Onnit.com slash Kyle, buy a bottle of Alpha Brain and you are automatically entered, guaranteed winner with a golden ticket, just like they do in the chocolate factory. Everybody wins something and the grand prize gets to come out here to Onnit HQ, hang with me, my, my dude, Aubrey Marcus. What's and, up? And you'll get to bring your fine-ass lady, or your homeboy, and come out here and party like rock stars, get trained up, get tuned up, eat at the cafe, enjoy all the luxuries and amazingness that is on at headquarters. Enter to win. All it takes is buying a product. Thank you guys for tuning in, and I look forward to this show. Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram to let us know what you think. Okay, so we're standing in 
the virtual reality component of the Huberman Lab here at Stanford University School of Medicine. And next to me is Melise Yilmaz, who's a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard, who's now a postdoctoral researcher in the Huberman Lab. And this box, this room that Kyle uh, and we are standing in was built specifically for the kinds of experiments we're gonna talk about today, which are to understand really what the physiology underlying the stress responses to really understand how breathing, heart rate changes in the visual system, how those come about. And the goal of this project is really straightforward. You know, whether that we're not trying to scare people. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what's going on in t- inside the body and in the brain as people experience different things. And their subjective reports of, yes, that's scary or no, that's not are very interesting to us, but we're really trying to figure out how their subjective reports and their physiology match. Because um, a lot of the people that come through here um, have regular levels of anxiety, and then we also look at people who have so-called generalized anxiety that suffer from an inability to regulate their internal state. And so today, Kyle's gonna go through a couple of the different, what we call stimuli, which are virtual experiences, which is the best way that we can bring real life experiences to the lab. And we're also gonna explore some of the so-called interventions things like hypnosis and breath work and so on as a means to try and allow people to modulate their internal state better than they did before that they, they show up here. We're not a clinical lab. This is a research lab, but it has very you know real clinical implications. And we hope to move some of this to clinical trials in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, Melise has a very specific interest in addition to that, which is to really create some objective measures of, of mental health. So maybe you mm-hmm. want to just talk about that for a moment or two. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think what makes this project unique is that we're able to measure real behavior. So people actually move and we actually look around as opposed to, you know, filling out a survey or a test or uh, watching, you know, an unrealistic image. Um, And so we using those real measurements of physiology and behavior, the goal of my research is to uh, create objective biomarkers of anxiety. So um, we recruit people with anxiety and also healthy individuals, and then we uh, use statistical techniques and other uh, measure, uh, other techniques to see what is it that is different in these two groups and their behavior and physiology. And also now we're adding neural responses. Um, you're combining neural responses with the uh, virtual reality experiences. So. Yeah, so when Mui says neural responses, um, We've got a collection of patients at UCSF, as well as at Stanford, and through collaborations with neurosurgery, we're able to do the equivalent types of experiments that you're gonna to see today that Kyle's doing, but in individuals that have electrodes lowered down below their skull. So they've had a neurosurgery, there's a piece of their skull's been removed, we've got electrodes down there chronically. So the electrodes are in there all the time to measure things like seizures, but it's, been, it's allowed us, I should really say it's allowed Melise, because she's the one who's been doing these experiments, to do what we believe are the first recordings from the human brain in VR, while people are in VR. So she's recorded from the human amygdala, the so-called fear center of the human brain, as well as the frontal cortex, the insula, all these areas that you hear about and there's a lot of discussion about. And the reason for doing those electrode recordings is that when you use EEG, no, no knock on EEG, it's, it has its utility, but that's just the first centimeter of the outside of the brain. And a lot of the stuff related to the sorts of things that go on in anxiety are happening really deep. You know, so it's like trying to understand the, the currents of the ocean by just looking at the white caps on the, on the waves. You know, EEG is kind of at that level and then deep electrode recordings are much more invasive. 
So um, Melius has been taking essentially the equivalent of this, <laughs> of this laboratory up to UCSF, um, often several times a week to work on these patients. And, and we're really excited about where those data are going. We'll be talking more about it later. Mm -hmm. For now, I think we should, um, we should talk about today's research subject. Definitely one of the, the larger and more fit subjects we've had in our lab, although we've had some athletes here before. So, um, so Kyle is standing inside the virtual reality chamber, if you will. This is an exact duplicate for, made for humans of some of the work that Melise had been doing in mice during her PhD at Harvard. So giving mice these stimuli to scare them to see whether or not they run or they hide or they fight. Or, and um, when she came to the lab, she said to me, uh, I want to work on these topics, but I want to do it in humans. And so here we are. This is, as far as we know, the first laboratory of this sort. The walls are padded just because occasionally people walk into them, although I don't think that will happen today. Um, Kyle's no, been in small enclosed spaces with a uh, lot of action before, so we're not too <laughs> concerned about, about uh, his safety. So, um, so she'll give him instructions, and we're going to take him through some of the experiences that both healthy and people with um, anxiety uh, experience when they come to the lab. I should mention the VR that we put together is unique in that um, some of it is done in with you know, computer-generated images. But this is, as far as we know, one of the earliest um, phases where we've been taking one of the first examples where we've taken real-world images, 360 video, and then stitch those together, Melissa stitch those together with programmers to create real-world environments because it's very different than looking at cartoon images. Um, so the VR experiences um, that uh, we're going to use today, we'll talk about as we go along. But that was a that took about a year and a half of going out and diving with great white sharks, mm -hmm. and sending tree climbers up in trees, and doing all that. I can uh, provide you some of those images if you like of the real world and trying to bring that back to the lab. Because as Melise pointed out, having someone fill out a questionnaire or look at pictures of skulls. That's just not very realistic, you know? And so now, 2019, heading to 2020, you know, we're able to do things that are far more realistic in the lab. So we've got Kyle Kingsbury in the lab today in an experiment that we do with um, so-called healthy people and people with generalized anxiety. And um, so he's down in the hallway right now uh, in hypnosis. So on the last podcast, we talked about so-called interventions or tools that people can use to modulate their internal state, whether or not that's because they are high anxious or whether or not that's because they're high performing and they want to perform even better, or whether or not they, you know, they understand and the value and power of sleep, but they're having trouble sleeping. And so, you know, my lab's involved in a number of things, but one of the things that we really want to do is create new protocols. Uh, you know, new tools that people can use to improve their ability to get into sleep, to calm their internal state, or to ramp up their internal state if that's where they perform best. Because um, Kyle and I were just talking about his experience of, of one of his best wing fights where, you know, his anxiety heading into the cage was very high. And the moment he got there, in the moment of a task, everything got quiet and calm. And he, you know, ended with a terrific win for himself. So that's a really good example of the fact that in some cases, and for some people, the higher states of arousal, so-called autonomic arousal, might actually be more powerful in terms of performance. So the three so-called, we call them interventions, but really the three tools that we've been looking at, these are just physiological tools to change internal state, to perform better or to relax more, um, are hypnosis, and this is a form of medical hypnosis, I'll explain what that is, respiration physiology, breath work, 
as well as um, something that most people would consider sort of like a meditative script um, that combines some breath work as well. So first of all, hypnosis. So Kyle's down the hall right now. He's in hypnosis. He's listening to a script that has his thoughts and in the context of his thinking directed in a particular way. And I talked a little bit about this on the last podcast, but if you missed it, I'll just kind of summarize real quick. Hypnosis involves narrowing the context of your focus so that you are not self-conscious about some of the things that you might do or say. This is manipulated in stage hypnosis, but we're not doing that um, right now. This is a form of self-hypnosis where he's hearing a script that allows him to direct his thinking toward the notion of self-internal um, control, control over his, over his breathing, control over his heart rate, control over his mental state. Now. There aren't a ton of data out there on hypnosis, but there's some that are starting. David Spiegel, who's in the Department of Psychiatry here at Stanford, has used hypnosis for things like smoking cessation, anxiety. So this script is very much like the sort that, that David uses. And um, you know, one thing that people could consider would be the use of a hypnosis script to direct their thinking and their behavior in the way they want to go. Now, what am I really, so what, what am I really saying? What I'm saying is that, you know, many of your listeners, um, many of you, the listeners, um, exercise. You believe in cardiovascular exercise, strength training exercise, mobility exercise, flexibility exercise. We don't have a lot of formal clarity on what exercises are good for the brain. But hypnosis, there are pretty impressive data, even though it's a limited number of studies, that it can improve one's ability to control their internal state. Um, I mentioned some of the scripts from Michael Seeley that are available free on YouTube. Again, no business or other relationship to Michael Seeley, never met him, but those are the ones that I happen to use. Uh, we have some that we're working on in our lab, and then we're evaluating what content in the hypnosis is really key. So right now, Kyle's using an experimental hypnosis paradigm um, just a new, a new hypnosis script where we're measuring things like how important is the cadence of the voice, the level of the voice that you hear, the duration of the hypnosis. I personally use a hypnotic script, one of the Sealy scripts that lasts about 10 to 30 minutes. He's using a 20 minute script right now. What we're trying to do is, is find those kind of minimal duration, minimal parameters of so maximum effective dose for changing your neurology simply through listening through hearing something in a script. So this is in woo, there are no, uh, there's no uh, notions of mindfulness or, or um, kind of mysticism in this. This is purely using the sensory input, auditory input, sometimes visual as well, to modulate one's own internal state after you get out of the hypnosis. Okay, so hypnosis is one. Um, if you come to my lab and you're a subject in an experiment, we can also provide you the hypnosis script. Um, when, you, when you leave, we do, Hope once we we do plan, I should say, once the um, the data are published, then we can distribute this as widely. One of the things that's really great about hypnosis and these other kinds of interventions is they're essentially free. Uh, you know that they're not costly. Um, the second so-called intervention is respiration work or breath work. Now here, you know, at risk of sparking a lot of controversy, I you know I don't think we yet know at all what the best patterns of respiration are for performance and for limiting anxiety. One thing that is becoming clear, however, is that long duration exhales, okay, blowing off a lot of CO2 can be a powerful way to rapidly downregulate the stress response. So when people say, you know, you get stressed, take a deep breath, mm, that's actually the opposite advice. You should say, take a long exhale, give a long exhale. Quick, the breathing quickens when you're stressed and taking in more oxygen is probably gonna bump up your arousal state. So if there's any kind of simple thing that I think we can all trust 
although now I'm, you know, just by saying that, I'm sure I'll invite some fire, but that's okay. Bring it. Um, you know, I'm tougher than I look, you know, so, you know, especially when it comes to ideas in neuroscience, we can debate this. I would, I would enjoy a healthy, um, a healthy debate about this, but a long exhale can be very powerful for rapid down regulation. Okay, there's a lot of debate now about nasal versus mouth breathing. I'm gonna probably upset a few people by saying this, but I don't think we know yet which one is better under which conditions. I think we really need to do the experiments. Now, there are real world experiments too that people in the performance community are doing. I think that's terrific and I applaud those. I'm not saying we need to do all the experiments in the confines of the university. However, my lab is looking at how long duration exhales impact the anxiety state not just when you're doing the breath work, but afterward when you're engaged in say a virtual environment, a real world environment, and that stress hits and you wanna downregulate, okay? So we're testing the hypothesis that long duration exhales are what are, are important. In my lab, we're not paying particular attention right now to nose versus mouth, but we have some other experiments in which we soon will. Again, once the data are published, and that should be within the next year, maybe sooner, we intend to, um, you know, reveal how different patterns of breath work, nose, mouth, long duration exhale, longer or, or you know, proportionally more inhaling impact even the, the, the amygdala, the fear centers in the brain, as well as cognition, the ability to do cognitive tasks, kind of like some of the simple ones that, that Kyle was doing today. Simple not because um, he couldn't do more sophisticated tasks, but because we sort of limited what we can do in the laboratory for all people. So we just kind of do, we kind of go to a common task, very simple spatial task, but it, it is powerful for allowing us to tap into cognitive state. So what patterns of breathing are most useful? That's a key question. So, um, you know, a takeaway would be, um, one, check out Hypnosis on YouTube. Very interesting. They, uh, as well as some of the scripts that are going to start being released from the medical community, um, they can be powerful for a number of people. Uh, breath work, or long duration exhales seem to downregulate people's level of autonomic arousal pretty quickly. Um, again, nose mouth, interesting debate. There's some, you know, I saw an interesting video of the late Charles Poliquin um, where he talked about something that uh, I'd love to test in the laboratory. We don't have data on this yet, but he talked about how closing the, the left nasal passage and breathing through the right nasal passage would increase levels of alertness and autonomic arousal. Whereas doing the opposite, closing the right nasal passage and breathing through the left nasal passage would decrease autonomic arousal. I tried it, so just subjectively in my own experience, this isn't in my lab, um, I would say that there might very well be something to it. I kind of did experience a kind of lift from the breathing through my right nostril and a down kind of more calming through the left nostril, but I may have been biased because uh, that's the way he said it would go. But I do think it's a powerful and interesting one because there's been so much in the yoga communities about um, closing one nostril and hemispheric breathing and, and this kind of thing. So interesting. And then the last one is this kind of meditative script that we use for people with generalized anxiety that um, looks a lot like the so-called yoga nidra, N-I-D-R-A, or sometimes spelled N-I-D-R-E that I talked about in the last podcast that you can find on, on YouTube. But just a note about that. So in my lab, we're not looking at yoga nidra. What we do is we have um, someone come in, they go through these experiences of the sort you saw today, and then we give them this um, deep relaxation protocol where they're hearing a voice which um, tells them to relax their muscles, um, to relax their, their gaze if their eyes are open, maybe to close their eyes and to focus their attention at the surface of the body, further away from the body to sounds in the room, then back into the body. So they're learning how to move their attention out of their own physiological experience to outside external stimuli. That alone can be very powerful. Learning how to deliberately shift your attention and not have your attention yanked around for you while doing 
different patterns of breathing. So things like long exhale breathing is our characteristic of Nidra. Now, some of this I realize is a repeat of what was in the last podcast. I wanted to just kind of put those three tools out there because it was a long one. And, and you know, I just if you take nothing else away from this, would be that you know hypnosis may have some utility and power. Uh, for you, the different types of hypnosis can be very tailored. So it's not just, oh, relaxation or increased level of alertness. They've got ones for smoking cessation, for uh, combating procrastination. Um, there are a lot of things. Whether or not they work or not for you, you'll have to just um, be your own scientist there. But in terms of essentially zero cost, except for the time involved, um, protocols and things to try, um, they seem, you know, essentially safe although obviously you know talk to your doctor i'm not a physician um i always say you know i'm not a medical doctor i don't prescribe anything i'm a professor so i profess lots of things but you know your medical care is your business not mine the the other thing you know in terms of thinking about respiration is right now there's a ton out there on hyperventilation protocols where you're breathing in a lot breathing a lot cycling your breathing a lot and getting into these kind of amped up states I think those actually could be quite powerful for certain kind of levels of mental and physical performance. But right now, there's no science that I'm aware of. And so that's one thing that we're very interested in. I'm working with various groups here and off campus to try and understand um, what the best protocols would be for high performance in hyper kind of hyper aroused or hyper oxygenated states. So that's where we're headed. Hopefully those takeaways will be useful to you. I personally have benefited a lot from doing a long exhale breathing protocol once a day for about five minutes. There's actually a, a, a different way to go about getting these long exhale um, breaths through the day that I just wanted to propose. And this is just something I do in my, in my own life. We haven't brought it to the lab yet. And it's something I just call it clock breathing, which is every time I look at the time, whether or not it's on my phone or watch or a wall clock, if it's one o'clock or anywhere between one and two o'clock a.m. or p.m., I'm rarely up at 1 a.m., but I do one deliberate conscious long exhale breath. If it's between two and three, I do two. If it's between three and four, and so on. And so throughout the day, because I tend to look at the clock a lot, there's times when I'm actually stopping and doing 12 full breaths. And this is a way of distributing, it averages out if you do the math, to you know more than 100 conscious long exhale breaths throughout the day. And this may seem kind of, you know, kind of hokey, but it's one way of doing breath work without having to sit in a chair and say, okay, you know, I'm gonna do breath work for five minutes or 10 minutes, which seems, you know, incredibly simple and like anybody should be able to do it but a lot of people in our experience you know in the, the lab setting in the clinical setting and just out in the community um, the general public they people don't follow through with these things very consistently and so it's kind of nice actually if you look at the, the clock I'm sometimes like oh nice I only have to do three breaths which is kind of you know I should want to do more but you know I'm human so I'll do three I'll just pause and do three doesn't matter where I am long exhale breaths typically I'll do them pure nasal but that's because I'm I, that's what works for me but you can do that at any point now if you don't look at the clock between four and five does it matter no you, you know you can look at between five and six and, and and do the breath work again this isn't to say that this is the most powerful form of breath work at all it's just to say that your breath work doesn't have to be done in one sitting. It can be spread throughout your activities. And then, you know, I happen to run a very long, very busy schedule from morning until night. And so this is a way in which I can introduce respiration physiology, conscious respiration physiology throughout the day, which is really what I want because I want to be able to think well, perform well in all domains of my life as I'm moving through the day. And so I'm constantly in touch with that aspect of my, of my nervous system. 
through this what I'm calling clock breathing, which is not a trademarked or commercialized thing at all. It's just that it's the simplest way that I could describe it. So a good example of, of you know clock breathing would be okay. I'm gonna I think right now it's um, it's somewhere between twelve and uh, somewhere between uh, twelve and one o'clock. So I'm not gonna do twelve breaths on camera, but because um, it would take up too much of your time. But what I would do then is if I look at the, the clock and it's you know um, twelve thirty eight, I would pause and do twelve inhales and then proportionally longer duration exhales. So an inhale and a long exhale would be one, and I would do that 12 times, so it would be between 12 and one o'clock. If I didn't look at the clock between 12 and one o'clock, I would do, I would, I would not do it at all, but then between one and two, I would just do one. Now, is there some sort of important math to this? No, it's a way of using a natural, um, a natural gauge, a natural calibration point, which is the time of day, as a way to, to have me doing conscious breath work throughout the day. And that could be while I'm running, could be while I'm training in the gym, could be while I'm teaching. It doesn't matter, right? The important thing is that you are doing some sort of work to train your nervous system to downregulate or at least to stay in a plane that you control through respiration physiology, through breath work. And it doesn't require, I don't believe that breath work has to be done by sitting, certainly not by lying down or closing the eyes or doing anything sort of symbolic or ceremonial, although it can if that's, if that's what you like to do, but it can just be spread throughout the day. And this is actually something that we're encouraging people to do and we're gonna be exploring as an experiment for people who are say um, in graduate school, in medical school, running high, you know, high demand athletic lives, you know, athletes at various levels, students, and then just anybody really, because doing a breathwork practice takes kind of a, a, a allotted amount of time. And even though 10 minutes doesn't seem like much, it's the whole process of setting aside time and moving into that space, which seems to act as a natural barrier for people. So we're really just trying to lower the barriers for accessing these conscious breathing um, protocols. And so, that's the way I would go about it. I think it's interesting that, you know, for 20, 30 plus years, people have been taking a supplement or drinking a cup of coffee and then going to a workout to get a better workout and then consuming things afterwards to recover better. But in a lot of ways, we still think about things like meditation and hypnosis as separate from anything you might ingest. Um, but there, and I guess this is sparked in part by the whole um, psychedelic movement. Like what should your mental state be when you're doing things to modulate your physical state? And what should your physical state be when you're doing things to modulate your mental state? So like one thing that I think would be really interesting, my lab's not doing this yet, but I would love in the future to explore would be for instance, like how some of the GABA analogs might improve people's ability to relax and go into deeper meditative states or, or more efficient hypnosis states. I think that's gonna be a really exciting next, kind of next generation area. Um, students, you know, I don't necessarily condone this, but you know, people do various things in order to study better, um, you know, right down to some pretty dangerous practices, which obviously I don't condone. But I think that um, it's kind of interesting to think about how supplementation and behavioral practices might eventually be combined. Yeah, you got me thinking about this uh, ketamine nasal spray that my doctor has me on. Not You're doing that day. now? Yeah, and um, you know, ketamine's been completely legal and obviously there's different treatment centers and the range is wide, you know, intravenous or intramuscular injections, a whole different animal. Uh, and I have experience with that, but the nasal spray is, you know, there's levels to it as with anything else and you can scale it. But I've, I'm able to meditate so deeply on mm. just the spray 
and I've done a float tanks combined with it and I've been just gone in the float. And then, so you feel you know, like you get more out of those just so much deeper. Yeah. So it'd be really cool to, to take a deeper look at that and actually see like, is it just a feeling that I have or is it actually changing mm -hmm. the neurochemistry and, and altering things in a way where I am dropping in significantly deeper? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, the, we have this idea that you have to do things every day. Like you ought to meditate every day or you got to do your breath work every day. A couple minutes ago, I was talking about, you know, I, I just spread my breath work throughout the day. I just do it by using the clock as a way to tell me how many breaths I should take. It's, it's, it's just a simple way of doing breath work without having to set aside some time specifically for that at one moment. I think that it'd be really interesting. I'm curious though, um, what's the subjective experience of ketamine like? I've never tried it and I'm wondering like, do you feel calm? Do you, do, what is it? Yeah, there's, it I mean, feel? like in, in the lighter doses, there's definitely a euphoria, you feel good. Um, at higher doses, you know, my buddy jokingly calls it forgetamine because you might be mid-sentence telling a story and just be mm. total blank, you know? Mm. But, um, uh, and then at heavier doses, whether you're snorting powder like Street K or snorting the, the ketamine spray that's prescription, you can get to a psychedelic space. The injections are purely psychedelic. You know, I've, I've had, uh, from a visionary standpoint, I've relived like, pretty significant memories, good ones too. You know, mm -hmm. like like the first time I did ketamine in college at ASU, it was off the dryer in my washer and dryer room with all my buddies waiting to see what was gonna happen. Just to be clear, <laughs> I am, I, Andrew Huberman, am not condoning doing any any illegal or well, street look, it's drugs. it's all on the up and up now, you know? Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it is out there as a therapeutic tool. I mean, I think we really are in the midst of an incredible tide change where, you know, Universities are studying these kinds of things. Clinically, they're, they're tools. We were just talking about how context is really important. And, you know, like, I, I guess kind of just going back to this idea that how to get the most out of a meditation session, yeah. how to get the most out of respiration physiology, how to get the most out of hypnosis. There's, you know, there's the idea, do it six days a week and with a day off on the weekend, kind of like the old school uh, weight training protocols mm -hmm. were. And six then now people realize, hey, you know, you can actually do you know shorter duration, high intensity. I think all of the same kind of parameters or variables that people have explored in the physical training space have can work as a kind of a template for exploring the physical, the, the mental augmentation mm -hmm. space. And um, and certainly you know supplementation and and various substances are being used in com combination with performance. We know that that's a big thing, um, and they work. Um, and are appropriate in some contexts and not in others. And it's gonna be really interesting to see um, what science can, pr can provide. You know, I guess one thing that, you know, I posted this video on Instagram the other day of, of the of an MRI, it was actually done here, um, of the brainstem kind of like morphing as somebody breathes. I saw that, yeah. And, um, and it got, you know, I, I don't have a, a super high volume Instagram site, but um, but we have enough people coming our way, and that, but it was, you know, a, a, a huge peak in terms of the number of people that, you know, saw it and commented and, and it and made the rounds. And uh, it, and it was, I was like intrigued, like people love the idea that the brain is changing in real time in response to something like respiration physiology. I, and it is, it's thrilling. I'll never forget the first time I saw it. I was like, wow. And so I guess, uh, you know, then I got a couple comments that were interesting. I, I take the comments seriously sometimes because they are a window <laughs> into the general public that normally I don't have here. On, we're on a university campus now, we're in School of Medicine. I don't get a lot of access to the outside world, so to speak, unless I you know, read those. And so, um, and someone said, you know, we don't need science to tell us what you know, yoga and it's known for a long time. And I agree, but the role of science, I should be really specific, that the reason for doing scientific experiments is that 
we, if we understand mechanism, like really how nasal versus mouth breathing or right nostril versus left nostril breathing is impacting the brain and body, then we can create new protocols that neither scientists nor physicians nor yogis nor anyone has ever thought about. Once you understand what the pieces are, what the kind of macronutrients are, then you can start creating new protocols. And so um, I feel like the discussions, I, I feel very grateful that you've um, you know, brought me on twice now because I really feel like there are um, people like yourself who are offering a bridge to the real world for science to do better, not just for the real world to be like, oh, science, great, but you know, for science to do better and, and provide people more of what they really need. So uh, I, you know, I want to, I definitely, I couldn't agree more and thank you. And I have you back again and again, <laughs> you're doing you know, great, great work here. That, thank but you. there, um, you know, a comment like that, I, I just makes me, I was chuckling to myself thinking of that. Cause it's like, obviously they're down with yoga and some of these practices that have changed their lives. And, and the thought process is we don't need it to, you to tell us that it works. Cause we know it fucking mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. Right. I could have the same thought process around psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca, but a smarter person will understand there's an entire population of people that only like they are in the science of religion or the, the mm -hmm. religion of science. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're yep. completely tied to that and where that goes, like, uh, even, you know, even the knock against some Western medicine is that it takes 30 years to implement something that's, that's just recently come out in science. Like it's just the mm -hmm. fact that yeah. there's it's a slow, it's it's slow. A slow change, it's right? Admittedly slow. So why not? take a look at these things and understand it better and then say, hey, like turns out tryptamines don't fry your brain and they actually can help increase mm -hmm. neuroplasticity and, and many other things. I think it's very cool that we're starting to see that now at different universities and mm -hmm. people, really smart people, some of the best people in the world are taking a look at it. I think it's gonna help a lot of people. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because the, the collaborate, what I, you know, the collaborations that are happening between science, scientists, but also science and the, the actual world, the real world. Because as you saw today, right, even with the state-of-the-art VR, right, the best VR that we can possibly come up with, real footage of, you know, video footage, not computer-generated images, physiological measures. We even put people, you know, we're, like I said before, we're recording deep in the brain. Even with that, it's not real life in the same way, right? And so to get tools that are really valuable for real life, we have to pour all that at it. And we need the discussion to go both ways. I, I have a saying that, uh, you know, my PhD advisor always said, you know, um, that I try and keep in mind, because I'm a human too, which is that tolerance has to go both ways, right? Scientists need to be more open to the general public and the general public needs to understand that not all physicians and scientists are really like tied in deep with the pharmaceutical industry and not all of the pharmaceutical industry is evil and bad. You know, at the point where something becomes really clear that it's a valuable, it's got to scale. As you know, you run a you run a supplement company in addition to doing other other things, or um, which is you, you got to bottle and sell things to get them out there. Otherwise, it, it it stays niche, it stays pocketed. So I think the more conversations, the more like um, you know skeptical conversations are good. The more like you know arguing is good. I'm in a field where I, look, ninety percent of the time, scientists are telling other scientists they're wrong. So I got a pretty thick skin, you know, people tell me like, you're an idiot, you don't know anything. I'm like, that's great. It just means I got to work harder and, and push, you know, and push back when I need to. So I think we need the conversation to go both ways. And it's super exciting. I, you know, again, like on the last podcast, I'll say, I'm not going to take any particular stance on what people should do or not do in terms of their healthcare. They, that's up to them. But I do think it's extremely exciting to see the kind of things that people are doing with diet and exercise, thinking about longevity, thinking about mental state. Um, I, I don't think it's just in the more sort of, you know, affluent or, or progressive areas, if you will. 
um, I think the whole world now is saying, look, you know, we need to take control of this organ in our heads. Like this, like this thing that housed inside of our skulls it can either make us miserable, make us feel amazing, or across the course of a day, both. We, we got to do something about it. So anyway, I, um, I think that there's tremendous power in supplements. As I mentioned last time, I, I'm a huge fan of the idea of taking um, for myself, again, uh, reasonable, reasonably researched and thought out um, tools to augment mental state is, is, makes, makes all the sense in the world to me. And you know, drinking 10 cups of coffee does not make sense to me. Um, some of the better nootropics that are out there are, are really interesting and we need more, more controlled studies. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Dude, it's been so fun coming here to the lab and getting to explore some of this stuff. Um, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for coming out here today and taking the trouble to let us um, wire you in, make you the, you're definitely one of the, um, the, the people in this community that I was referring to, that I really, the, the hand that you're extending out of the community you're in to the community that I'm in, I, I'm certain is gonna lead to really important places. Um, thanks awesome, so much. Brother. We'll do it again. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to the show. Remember, all you got to do is go to the YouTube channel if you want to see some of the wacky shit that I did with Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's phenomenal. He's at Huberman Lab on Instagram. Hit us up there at Kingsboo. Go to kingsboo.com, enter your email. I won't bombard you with bullshit. A monthly newsletter is all you'll get from me and every supplement that I take that I find to be the most transformative there. So check those out. Thank you guys for tuning in and I look forward to hearing from you online.